Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Today we're going to talk with the Mexico Solidarity Network and about some of their work that's going on in Chiapas. And with us is Tom Hansen. He is the International Education Director of the Mexico Solidarity Network. He was on the program maybe 18 or 19 years ago, we estimated, in, mm-hmm. in conversation before the uh, interview. Nice to see you again. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Tell people what the Mexico Solidarity Network is and does. Well, we started back in 1995, uh, shortly after the Zapatista uprising in Mexico. And we started basically as a solidarity group, trying to promote uh, solidarity with the Zapatista movement. And we've continued that work now for 20 years. And the Zapatista movement, um, it's changed a lot in that, in that, in that time. It's, uh, it's now nonviolent and uh, the fight for indigenous rights is, 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 seems more broad. It is. It's uh, the Zapatista movement has extended into a, not just a statewide movement, but a, a national movement in Mexico and really a worldwide movement. It's inspired uh, leftist political movements, anti-capitalist political movements all over the world. Now, what does the Mexico Solidarity Network uh, do these days? What kind of uh, programs do you have? Well, we just this past year we uh, we hosted a representative from the National Indigenous Congress, which is a national grouping of indigenous peoples from throughout Mexico. It includes uh, 56 different indigenous groups from Mexico. Uh, and they tried to run a presidential candidate in the last presidential election in Mexico. I, did, I bet a lot of people have never heard of the National Indigenous Congress in Mexico. Probably not. <laughs> it's, uh, it's very well known amongst indigenous communities, but it's not particularly well-known internationally. But they did try to run a a candidate in the presidential election earlier this year. uh, We hosted a couple of speakers from the CNI who came to Chicago and then went to New York, and uh, they were in Denver for a little while and Washington, D.C., and eventually they didn't collect enough signatures to get the candidate on the ballot. Um, it, It was an interesting process. There were four independent candidates who were collecting signatures. In most cases, the candidates were from sort of standard traditional political parties in Mexico. In most cases, most of their signatures were thrown out as being fraudulent or being bought. In in our case, in the case of the the candidate who ran for the CNI, 97% of of the signatures were approved. But we didn't get to the 900,000 signatures that were needed, I think, Eventually, there were about 400,000 signatures that were collected. Wow, 900,000 is a steep bar. It's a steep bar, and especially the way they were collecting them. You had to actually register your signatures along with a photograph of identification papers via cell phones. And so you had to have a cell phone that could take a photograph, and you had to have access to cell phone communication, which is just not possible in many indigenous communities in, in Mexico. All right. So, I mean, do you think that's an obstacle to the goal, that it was a deliberate thing? Very much so. I mean, the goal was more to organize indigenous peoples in a kind of a community-based grassroots movement. I don't think anybody ever expected an indigenous person to be elected president. Um, And I'm not sure what they would have there, there, were, there would have been a collective presidency rather than an individual presidency. So it would have changed Mexican politics completely. And I'm not sure Mexico is ready for that yet. Um, but the the organizing that was done on a community-based level was very important and continues now. In fact, uh, later in the month of October, 
uh, there's going to be a meeting held by the CNI in which they've invited um, international participants to talk about what's the next step in our organizing. Well, that's an, an, a really interesting story to hear about or indigenous organizing in Mexico. Um, now, you have students and you work with students here in the Chicago area, and they go down to Mexico. They go to Chiapas and work with a partner of yours that we want to talk about. Yeah, we have a, a study abroad program. It's an accredited study abroad program. Uh, students go for either the fall or spring semester or for a four-week summer program. They live in Zapatista communities. They learn about the theory and practice of Mexican social movements. And one of our partners there is the Fray Bartolome Human Rights Center, probably the preeminent human rights center in all of Mexico. Uh, they've been doing work since 1994, uh, originally started by the Catholic Church by Bishop Samuel Ruiz, um, who's a well-known defender of human rights, unfortunately passed on several years ago. Um, but our students uh, work with the Fray Bartolome Center, and in some cases they go back to do human rights work with the Fray Bartolome Center. And we have Tomas Zapp on the line with us. He is the coordinator of Solidarity Relations for the Fray Bartolome Center in Chiapas. Thanks a lot for joining us, Tomas. Yeah, uh, thanks a lot for the invitation. Could you explain what your human rights organization does and how it's helping indigenous people in Chiapas? We are working with, with indigenous communities that are uh, suffering human rights violations. And while well, the, the process is about organizing them, usually they are kind of organized, but we try to strengthen this organization. Um, we support them with uh, national and international solidarity, so to spread their word, to make their cases known. Um, we have legal support for the indigenous communities, though it's not the only part, since um, in Mexico there's a 99% of impunity in the cases denounced of crimes. So it's it's important to support political processes, organizational processes, and to, to spread their word to support of, uh, solidarity groups like MSN. What are the, some some of the violations of human rights that indigenous people are going through in Chiapas? Well, um, it's mostly about their right to land and territory. It's about infrastructure projects. It's about oil extraction. It's about mining. So there is usually a project run by or a private company or by the state. And they just get into the land, into the territories, without asking the communities. And if it's com indigenous communities, they have the right to be heard, to be consulted about what's going on on their territories. And usually this right is not respected. So it, it sounds like some of your work is basically organizing to let people know their rights and how, what they can do if something happens to their land? Yes. It's, it's about... Uh, giving them the tools, it's about uh, telling them what their rights are, and uh, kind of giving some counsel of what, what they can do. It's about, um, it's their choice. Finally, our idea is to convert them in, hum in human rights defenders, that they defend themselves, their territories. We support them, we accompany them, but it's not about being us the protagonists, but the communities being the protagonists of their human rights defense. Is there a circumstance where an indigenous community has really beat back a big land grab that you could tell us about? 
Well, there, there has been the project of uh, constructing a highway from San Cristobal, which is in the center of Chiapas, to the northern city of Palenque, where there are some Maya ruins. There has been quite a lot of protest, quite a lot of um, yeah, mobilization, and it's probably because of that that the highway until today has not been constructed. Usually the government recurs to repression just to divide the communities. So it's kind of hard to strengthen those processes if there is any kind of repression. But in this case, maybe it was successful just to not realize this project, which would have run through several of the Mayan communities in the area. Uh, Tomas, how did you get involved with this project? You're not originally from Mexico? Right. Yeah, I'm from Germany, and I came here to participate in the Human Rights Observers Brigades uh, 15 years ago. And, yeah, I got to stick with this project, and, yeah, I had the possibility to come back like 10 years ago, and since nine, since 2008, um, working in Chiapas, uh, started not to work here in Freiburg, but in, in a different organization, but... Yeah, finally I had the opportunity to work with Freiburg directly in this. What are some of the things that uh, Tom Hansen's young people help with when they're down there in Mexico uh, working on indigenous human rights issues? Well, sometimes they participate in human rights observer brigades. We send to the communities that might suffer kind of human rights violations. So if they're in the communities, it's already enough to that they are there, that they are seen, so that the state authorities like uh, police or Mexican army will not harm the communities. So that's just a very important element. And if there's something going on, if there's something happen, happening that would be human rights violations, they would document it and just tell us what has been going on during their stay, so we can denounce this if if this would be a good idea to, to denounce it publicly or if we just tell the government there's been going something on and you should do something about it. The other thing is that they just uh, are invited to spread the word, that they uh, just tell their friends, tell their families, with their circles, with their networks, tell uh, them what's going on in Mexico, what's going on in Chiapas. And that helps a lot since people get aware of what's going on and and might do a difference in their local areas, in their hometowns, in their places. So this is like maybe two um, things that really show that there is um, is a support. I'm talking with Tomas Zaff. He's coordinator of Solidarity Relations for the Fray Bartolome Center for Human Rights in Chiapas. And Tom Hansen is here. He's international education director of the Mexico Solidarity Network, which uh, works with the Fray Bartolome Center. And Tom, tell us, what, what are the young people you work with? They come back from this experience. What, what, uh, what changes about them? Boy, the experience is really powerful. I mean, to live in a Zapatista community for two months, to experience what indigenous communities experience in their, every day in their lives is a life-changing experience. Uh, in fact, we have a, a doctoral student right now who used to work with us who's doing his thesis on the changes that students go through when they experience this kind of living situation. It's, you know, it's a different culture. 
a different lifestyle, uh, a different cosmovision, a, a different way of viewing the world. And the, our students almost inevitably learn to respect that, learn to move outside themselves. They learn, uh, they learn that there are different ways of viewing the world than, their experience, than they've experienced here in the United States. And it's a real eye-opening experience. Now, you've started a crowdfunding campaign to help with the work of the Fray Bartolome Center in Chiapas. What kind of thing are you doing here? Well, we're trying to raise funds for the Fray Bartolome Center so that they can expand their funding base. Their work obviously costs money. It costs money to pay for transportation, to pay for copying legal documents. I mean, any number of different things, radios, so that they can communicate with different communities. Um, and they've depended mainly on foundation grants and churches, and those, of course, are are variable. I mean, three years in a row, a foundation will give you money, and the fourth year they'll say, well, now, now it's up to you to replace us. Um, and so they're trying to expand their funding base, and so we're working with uh, globalgiving.org uh, to uh, try to raise funds. And if we can raise a certain amount of money, I think it's $10,000 by October 2nd, this will become a permanent project of the globalgiving.org group. So people could go to globalgiving.org and they would search for? Search for Fry Bartolome Human Rights Center. You've been doing this a long time, Tom. What keeps you doing it? I, you know, I get asked that question a lot. I, I don't, I never know how to respond to it. I think that my mother once told me that it's a, it's a shame not to know something, but it's a sin not to know something and not do something about it. And I feel like once you know what's going on in Chiapas, it's, you can't help but try to do something about it. Um, Tomas, have you seen changes in the last decade that you've been working in Chiapas? Are things getting any better? You know, I was looking at some of the statistics and you know, mining, 10% of the territory is uh, being worked by mining companies. Uh, infrastructure projects get okayed by the government without people's consent. Hydroelectric dams near the jungle. Uh, can you say that things are getting different there? Yes, they do in a certain way. There's not uh, so much difference, but there is difference in the projects that are really organized. For example, in the Soccer region, which is in the western part of Chiapas, they organized against all extraction projects as there was privatized a few years ago. And they achieved that their uh, region would not be affected by now. Maybe it can be affected later on, but by now it won't be affected. There was another project recently they would start to construct a hydroelectric dam uh, close to the Lacandonian jungle. And um, the Mexican government, I guess because of the pressure they did in this region just a month ago, they said, well, this project won't run since there's too much impact on the indigenous communities over there. So there is a difference when people get organized, when the communities get organized, when they pronounce themselves, when they say this project won't run in our region since they affect our lives. Obviously, there are quite a lot of communities that are not that much organized, and they might kind of uh, yeah get divided, and uh, some of the people receive some money from the Mexican government or from the 
companies in order to accept the project. But there's also those examples that show that there is a difference if you organize, if there's support. So that's really cool. Um, Tom Hansen, if people want to get more information about the Fray Bartolome Project or the Mexico Solidarity Network, what do they do? You can go to uh, MexicoSolidarity.org or you can go to awesome, AUSM.community, which is our educational project. The, it stands for the Autonomous University of Social Movements. Uh, sounds terrific. And people can check out globalgiving.org and look up the Fray Bartolome Center for Human Rights there and uh, participate in the campaign. Thanks a lot for joining us, Tom Hansen and Tomas Zaff, uh, both working for human rights in Chiapas. Thank you. Thank you. The Violence Against Women Act is struggling in Congress. Coming up after the break, we'll connect the Violence Against Women's Act to the Kavanaugh hearings. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. There's a regular feature in The Guardian called This Week in Patriarchy, and the latest column is entitled, The Kavanaugh Hearing Proves Yet Again That the U.S. Hates Women. And the legislative agenda for the U.S. Congress gives additional evidence of that. Funding for the Violence Against Women Act is going to run out in December. There's some talk of a compromise, but we're going to talk about the legal terrain for women and what it means in the fight for equal rights. With me is Bernadine Dorn, former head of Northwestern University's Children and Family Justice Center. Good to see you, Bernadine. Good to see you, Joe. And also with me is Jessica Bank Interlandi, and she's a family law attorney who advocates for victims of domestic abuse. Jessica, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I understand that you've seen more people reporting domestic abuse incidents. Right as Congress is thinking about the Violence Against Women Act, uh, there seems to be an uptick in people wanting to report. That is correct. I have seen a real surge in um, particularly women reporting incidences of domestic violence and abuse in the last, I would say, year or so, and it sort of coincides with the Me Too movement and everything that's going on right now, um, not only in the frequency of reporting, but also in the types of abuse that they are reporting in terms of stalking and harassment and things that one might not necessarily think of as domestic violence. Um, I think that what is going on right now in the media has made people feel like it's okay to make a disclosure of domestic violence. And I also think it has made people realize that there are 
um, systems and organizations in place outside of law enforcement and maybe the judicial system there to support them once they make a disclosure. Um, Bernadine, what do you think about uh, why this is happening now and what the what the end result is here? If uh, Congress seems to be debating even putting money towards helping women who are uh, victims of domestic abuse. Well, I don't like everybody else. I don't know what's going to happen uh, with this particular situation with the Kavanaugh nomination. I think that we are witnessing, though, um, kind of a slow motion wave, massive wave of I don't mean electoral wave necessarily, but I mean a wave of women participating in public life and social struggles from the Me Too movement to Trump's vulgarity about women to the marches that have happened. And what's just happened in front of our eyes, phenomenal to me, massive participatory teach-in about privilege, male privilege and male patriarchy. And that those words that were kind of, you know, I don't know what, uh, academic words uh, or left words now make sense to explain things to people and are kind of widespread. Uh, watching that testimony, which I did every minute last week, uh, was a display, you know, of male rage, of privilege, of a man crying, of self-righteous notions that I've worked hard for everything I've got uh, and the obliteration of the women's voice. And I think that (laughs) infuriates women and young girls and that people are paying attention. It always seems, though, that when things get into the legal realm, things get um, legaled out. And like the investigation and the FBI in this case, uh, with the Violence Against Women Act, there seems to be legal foot dragging on several issues. Uh, what's going on there, Jessica? Well, I, I think what gets lost in all of this is domestic violence is so much more than a legal issue. It is so much more than a law enforcement issue. As Bernadine was um, speaking to, it's an issue that is driven in large part by um, economics. It is driven by race. It is also an issue that needs to be dealt with in large part really outside of the legal system. Um, You know, there are not adequate structures in place to help women feel supported when they make a disclosure of domestic violence. And what's going on right now is helpful and good in that we see someone stepping up and saying, this happened to me and it's okay if you tell us that it happened to you. But it also allows, because of the circus that is going on around it, for this to be incredibly politicized when really it's about a person and a something very private and awful that happened to a person that gets lost in what's going on right now, particularly as it's being portrayed in the media. Is there something about this? I mean, if um, the nomination goes forward and Kavanaugh is confirmed, that sends what message? I mean, it, it almost seems like you could do, you know, the message that it's okay to mess around with the Violence Against Women Act is the same thing. You, you, you're, uh, well, maybe we should change that. We should, you know, whip through that. I think the stakes are very high about what's going to get changed if he is ratified. And the amazing thing right now is that 
we don't know. Nobody really knows quite what's next. But I think the fact that it's in play is um, enormous. It's, it, it suggests that people are having an impact that, you know, a young woman holding the elevator door open uh, while Jeff Flake is inside actually influenced what he did there. And I, I think that everybody who is aware, particularly women, but men too, need to step up. We need to step up our game. I think it, you know, what we do makes a difference. And so if we do, if we normally call our senator, I think that we should go sit in at our senator's office. And if we normally sit in at our senator's office, we should go downtown and rally and invite people over to our house who live on our block or two blocks away to discuss this because it's in play and it's uh, what we do makes a difference. I think that, to me, that's one of the lessons of the last year of women's activity. I'm talking with Bernadine Dorn, former head of the Northwestern University Children and Family Justice Center, and Jessica Bank-Enderlandi. She's a family law attorney who advocates for victims of domestic abuse. What does doing something look like to you, Jessica? If it comes to the Violence Against Women Act, uh, what what should people do uh, to see that through in December? Well, first of all, vote because it comes after the midterms. Um, the law was set to expire uh, at the end of September. That's now been extended to early December. And it's important to understand what the stakes are if this doesn't get renewed. Um, you know, the Violence Against Women Act really allows for a more comprehensive response to domestic violence along the lines of what I was talking about earlier. You know, it's not just a legal issue. It's not just a law enforcement issue. It um, allocates funding to organizations and to clergy and mental health professionals and law enforcement and correctional officials to to sort of educate people and you know, create a more unified response to domestic violence that doesn't just involve the incident that happened. So to the extent that your voice can be heard to allow that renewal to happen, the better off that we'll all be. Isn't it odd that there needs to be a piece of legislation for all that to be funded and happen? Why isn't why doesn't it happen in the middle of any other funding legislation? Well, interestingly <laughs> This is the federal government allocating funds through the Department of Justice to, you know, various organizations, et cetera, among other things. Why it has to come from here as opposed to any other piece of legislation, I mean, that's anybody's anybody's guess in terms of what goes on in the political system. And this is not a perfect law by any means. There's um, problems with funding and fraud, et cetera. But right now, this is the most comprehensive piece of federal legislation that allocates funds to states to allow them to do whatever they can do to create this sort of comprehensive 360 response to um, domestic violence problems. But I think that I want to just put in a pitch again for economic equality because women are so far behind men. And, you know, in my lifetime, <laughs> and I'm old, uh, you know, it's only evened out just a slight bit. So instead of 69 cents on the dollar women earn for white men, it's now 79 cents if you're white and, you know, 63 cents if you're African American and 57 cents if you're Native American and 54 cents if you're Latina. 
or Latinx. This is, you know, if you don't have resources, if you can't leave a violent situation, if you, you would never think to report it, 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 it you or, or have the wherewithal to have, you know, women protecting women on the streets or take a cab home after you work instead of stand at a bus stop. So all of the space in which women are vulnerable, I think, is is enhanced by this economic inequality. And I think in this moment, we want to expand how we think about this. I know Jessica agrees with this, too, and that this is, you know, a foundation to make laws like VAWA work for women. It seems like the Violence Against Women Act was something that was, uh, it was an outgrowth of the Anita Hill hearings. That's it was right. the right. year of the woman. Absolutely was. That's right. And uh, it was a portion of that uh, awakening that, that we needed something to, to make up for this discrepancy. <laughs> but and the efforts to change economically are so slow grinding. I mean, we're seeing Hollywood women have these conversations. We're seeing teachers striking and having these yes. conversations. And the Domestic Workers Alliance and restaurant workers and hotel workers. I mean, jobs that women are majority of are the are really organizing. And there's a, a tremendous, I think, connection here between organizing for a, a living wage and decent conditions of work and the sexual violence movement. It's not always talked about in that integrated way, but I think it is integrated on the ground. Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. I mean, you know, a lot of what is contained within VAWA is a big help to underserved populations. Um, And while certainly women of all economic classes are victims of domestic violence, without a doubt, a lot of what is contained in VAWA is resources that might not otherwise be available to women who don't have means. Domestic violence hotline, things like that, you know, they don't exist without, without VAWA. You know, my, I have a friend of mine who I know very well and I've known very well for 30 years um, just told her sons, her adult son, now adult sons, uh, this weekend that she was raped as a teenager. I, I think that there's a, a, a bubbling going on that we don't even know yet what legislation will come, what implications will come, what ratifications and and, and uh, approval systems might change because of this. But I think it's it's deep and it's stirring in people memories, their own memories of teenage life and how they want their children and grandchildren to behave. There's so many things in the past where women's rights have been rejected publicly. And the connection, um, you know, I don't think it's usually made to privilege or economic justice, but it could be made to privilege and economic justice that you don't have an equal rights amendment that uh, didn't get passed. And I noticed that Illinois passed it in May, and there's some effort to revive the Equal Rights Amendment and say that the deadline that it was facing was a faulty one, and uh, if other amendments can take 200 years to pass, why can't we pass this? There's also the International Convention on the uh, All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, which the United States signed but never ratified. It's exactly. one of the few countries in the world that has not ratified this. Um, that. <laughs> 
the, the privileged class seems to express itself quite clearly on this issue. It, it's not mincing around. No, I, I think that's true. And I think that – and that's what we are seeing front and center in the media because that's what's most appealing and most interesting to you know, consumers. But there's a whole class of people who are – there is this, as Bernadine said, this, this bubbling up who are wanting to be heard and who are being heard. And that's really, really, really important. This woman who held open the door, <laughs> the elevator door with Jeff Flake, you know, I heard her on Democracy Now! Extraordinary. You know, she's an organizer. She's an activist. I don't know if you pressed her. Did she think she was going to change his mind? She did change a tiny bit of his mind. I looked to this There's a letter to the New York Times, a one-sentence letter that says, all men aren't jerks, but all jerks are men. There's a letter for, the, for our times. I think, you know, it, it's, a, it's a sense that um, we have to speak up and act up, I guess. Bernadine Dorn is former head of Northwestern University's Children and Family Justice Center. Jessica Bank Interlandi is a family law attorney who advocates for victims of domestic abuse. Thanks for joining us for talking about the Violence Against Women Act and all the rest. Thank, Thank you. you. Tonight, scenes of a deportation will be projected on the side of the 4th Presbyterian Church on Michigan Avenue. After the break, we'll hear the story of Lourdes Salazar Bautista. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. U.S. immigration policy has led to the deportation of people who've been here for decades. Lourdes Salazar Bautista had lived in Ann Arbor, Michigan for the last 20 years. Her teenage children were all born in the U.S. The family had been hopeful that Lourdes would be allowed to stay in the U.S., but she was deported in August of 2017. And here's Lourdes sharing her indignation about the Trump administration not allowing any judicial process for people who wanted to stay in the U.S. Año tras año, yo iba a, a migración y ellos renovaban mi permiso por un año, por otro año, hasta la nueva gobernatura que llegó Trump. Year after year after year, I went to the immigration offices, and they renewed my residency until the Trump administration arrived. I went to my appointment in March of 2017, thinking that my residency would again be renewed. But immigration told me that they were no longer renewing and that they had been reviewing my files. They told me that I was eligible for deportation and I would have to leave the country in September. I fought against everything, everyone. I visited the most important people to ask them if they would please let me stay, to continue alongside my children. I was doing a good job. My kids were learning to live with the absence of their father, and they could still visit him. But no one could help me and told me I had to leave the country. Ya se estaban adaptando a 
Pero nadie me pudo ayudar. Dijeron que tenía que salir del país. Lord Ace's deportation was documented by photojournalist Rachel Wolf. Her exhibit and project is called Deported, an American Division. It began in July of 2017 when she met Lourdes Salazar Bautista days before her deportation hearing in Detroit. Deported, an American division about Lourdes's plight, will be featured tonight as part of an event called an Interfaith Immigrant Justice Vigil at Chicago's 4th Presbyterian Church, 126 East Chestnut Street. As part of the vigil, Artworks Projects will project images from deported onto the facade of the 4th Presbyterian Church. So if you go by Michigan Avenue, you'll see pictures of Lourdes being deported. Bautista had been living in Ann Arbor, Michigan for the past 20 years, along with her children, Pamela, 19, Brian, 14, and Lourdes, 16. They were all born in the United States. Though the family was hopeful that Bautista would be granted permission to stay in the U.S., it was determined at her hearing that she would be deported. Bautista, along with her two younger children, left for Mexico soon after the hearing in August of 2017. And here Lourdes talks about the hardship for her and her family. El que, el que los niños no tuvieran a su papá fue una cosa muy grande que, que hasta ahora no puedo superar porque yo los miraba a ellos y ellos siempre preocupados por mí y... For my children to grow up without a father was the most difficult thing for me to grasp. It was something that I could not live down. My children were always worried about me. So I told them that we needed to be with their father because family is the most important thing in life, and they understood this. But we had to put in a lot of work. At first, they didn't understand the language, especially in school, and it was really hard on them. Schooling here is so different. It's a different world, nothing to do with the way we're accustomed to in the educational aspect. Here, as you know, individual desks are used, and they do not work together as they do there. The kids were accustomed to lots of group and teamwork with their classmates, and here it's different. In the beginning, they were nervous, scared, insecure, and all that, but were overcoming it. They are much better now. But at the beginning, Brian, the youngest, would tell me, you don't love me because you took everything away from me. Brian, más que Lulis, el chiquito, el varón, hasta me decía, es que tú no me amas porque... Laura Sanders is co-founder of the Washtenaw Interfaith Coalition for Immigrant Rights. She's known Lourdes Salazar Bautista for almost a decade, and she talks about the effort to help people who are facing deportation in the Ann Arbor area. Laura, could you tell us about the founding of the Washtenaw Interfaith Coalition for Immigrant Rights and, and how you got to know Lourdes? My spouse is from Mexico. I'm a social worker in Ann Arbor and an um, instructor at U of M, but my spouse is from Mexico and was undocumented at the time, and we were very involved with his community. And in 2008, there was a major immigration raid of a large mobile home community here between Ypsilanti and Ann Arbor, and we brought together, along with some other very conscious-minded people, we brought together about 50 people in an urgent response to that raid, and that was really the beginning, kind of the birth story of the Washtenaw Interfaith Coalition for Immigrant Rights. So one of the first things that the community asked for was a phone number that they could call if 
people were facing deportation, detainment, or anything else dealing with immigration. And so my spouse, actually, we carried the phone for about four years, and he took most of the phone calls because he was the best Spanish speaker. Uh, Lordy's heard about us. She tried to call. She had been detained and in front of her children in her front yard, completely unexpected, in June of 2010. And she was detained and held for about 23 days. When she was released, she was absolutely distraught and traumatized, and she wanted to reach out for help. And she came to our door and knocked on our door, and we interviewed her first in our kitchen, my uh, spouse and I. And she told us her whole story of this arrest, this unexpected arrest. They had come for her after like 14 years of her being here, said that she had signed a deportation order when she was pregnant with her first child, which she had no recollection of and didn't believe she had done. And then they made some strange deal where they let her stay and took her husband instead. So they switched them out so that she could stay with her children until December of that year when she was supposed to be deported as well. So she was absolutely frantic and came to us and cried at our kitchen table for hours and we talked with her about starting a campaign to stop her deportation. Now just to go back, I mean you said this whole process started in June of 2010 and then she was eventually deported in July of 2017. It took 7 years. Her children, you know, a large portion of their life was dominated by their mother's and father's threat of deportation. Exactly. And one of the first things I did, because I have the credential to do it, is I did a pro bono assessment of her children. And Pamela was 13 at the time, and she's now 20, I believe, either 19 or 20. And um, she was very depressed. She had witnessed this. You know, she had had to take on many more responsibilities since her mother had been detained and her father had been taken out. Um, Little Lourdes was like 10 at the time and struggling with special needs, and Brian was about 8. And they were traumatized. You know, it was very, very damaging to this family. Um, But Lourdes was the first campaign that we had taken on to try to stop someone's deportation, and she got brave really quickly. And she was actually very much at the center of her campaign. She had to mull over for a couple of weeks whether she wanted to go public with it because she was terrified, of course, of ICE. And they'd already given her a deportation date for December of that year. And we only had about, you know, a few months to pull together all the resources to try to do a campaign, you know, to stop her deportation. So we just organized very quickly. Many, many people from our community got involved. Lourdes is loved, beloved in our community by her own Mexican and Latinx community. And so all of the community, that community got involved. I mean, we just, you know, allies and came together. We confronted ICE. We wrote letters. We talked to every congressional person. We did a big online petition. We went around to all the churches and had people make phone calls to ICE during their coffee hours. I mean, we got new legal help for her because she was being abused by her attorney. I mean, we just went all out 
in this campaign to stop her deportation, and she was at the center of it. We had a candlelight vigil that drew like 400 people to the local Catholic church. We did marches. We started a teen group because her kids... Why didn't this work? Why did she get deported then if she had this much support in the community, had been here 20 years? What was the legal basis? We were able to stop that deportation at that time. She already even had tickets to go, and we were able to stop it. They called the day before and said that they were going to give her another year. Okay, so, you know, we called someone in Washington. They said, well, you threw so many pancakes against the wall, something stuck. We don't even know. Even the bishops were involved. We don't even know exactly why they stopped it. What I know now, after working with this, is that Rebecca Aducci, who's the head of ICE, the Detroit field office, made the decision. And she makes, actually, the final decisions about everything. She's pretty ruthless in so many ways. But we were able to keep Lourdes here for years just by putting in a new legal stay of removal, a request for stay of removal. And they had agreed to her stay for the last five years. What happened is that Trump came into office and now ICE is like unleashed, right? They, they have unwielding power. They have threatened to deport everyone. I think actually they're, they were using Lourdes as a model. Like, look, even you people, you know, we've been gracing you from year to year, these stays of deportation. Now even you are at risk. Um, the model citizens, right, the mother with three children, the community member who has been completely and utterly involved in her community in the most positive ways, right? We, we really felt like they were sticking it to Lourdes, and they were sticking it to the activists and the community people that have organized intensely to stop these deportations. You know, we went on to stop about six other deportations. We lose some, we win some, but right now everybody is at risk. And I'm- certainly was traumatic for her, traumatic to, you know, have this hopefulness. Again, when we did the campaign now the second time, you know, which was very recently, um, she had hope that if we sent enough letters, if we talked to enough people, you know, that it would all work out, but it didn't. And it was pretty apparent from the beginning that they were going to stick it to her. I'm talking with Laura Sanders. She's co-founder of the Washtenaw Interfaith Coalition for Immigrant Rights. She's known Lourdes Salazar-Bautista for almost a decade. Lourdes was deported in July of 2017. Her husband had been previously deported. Uh, What's her life like now for the last year in Mexico, Laura? Well, I have minimal contact with her, but it was very, very hard. Her children were embedded in their community, in their schools, in their in their activities here, loved by all. They were uprooted. Her daughter, Pamela, went off to Michigan State, now all by herself, right, without the family to come home to on the weekends, and went through a whole lot of trauma with that. Um, Lourdes went back to a town where there was a lot of support for her because her case went international and a lot of people heard about what was going on. And so there was, she was lucky because there was support to help her kids get into schools to help her. But, you know, that support is only going to last for so long. And if you think about all the other families, all the other people and families with U.S. citizen children. You know, here we're we're deporting parents who have U.S. citizen children, and so that's really a forced deportation of their children. Um, And it's 
should be seen as a crime, really, to deport people where, you know, the secondary effect is to deport their U.S. citizen child back to a country where they weren't even born. Back in these little villages, there's a lot of poverty. There's very few resources. You know, in our organization, we look at immigration from the root cause, right? We don't think that immigration issues start at our border. We know that the U.S. has been involved in the depletion of resources and the demise of um, economies in Mexico and in Central America, which is why so many people come to our border. So we're very clear that the problem is a very big one. It's a problem with our short-sighted view of immigration in this country. And we know that Lourdes went back to a life that was diminished in comparison. Now, it was great for her to be back with her husband. You know, there's some very positive things, but her daughter is here. She is there. Um, her children were uprooted. Lourdes, little Lourdes, the middle child, went through an incredible difficulty adjusting in uh, Mexico and, and may still be really struggling. Laura Sanders is co-founder of the Washtenaw Interfaith Coalition for Immigrant Rights by Where Ann Arbor is, and she's known Lourdes Salazar Bautista for almost a decade. Thanks for joining us and talking about the case. You're welcome. The photo exhibit that's been running at the Artworks Projects Gallery called Deported, an American Division about Lourdes' Plight will be featured tonight as part of an event called An Interfaith Immigrant Justice Vigil at Chicago's 4th Presbyterian Church, 126 East Chestnut Street. The organizers call the gathering an evening of prayer, song, art, and protest to call for justice for our immigrant sisters and brothers. As part of the vigil, Artworks Projects will project images from deported onto the facade of the 4th Presbyterian Church. So if you go by Michigan Avenue, you'll see great big pictures of a woman being deported. Uh, Sponsors include the Chicago Religious Leadership Network on Latin America and the Interfaith Coalition Against Racism. So that exhibit and conversation again tonight is at the 4th Presbyterian Church, 126 East Chestnut Street. And pictures of deported will be up on the facade of the church. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk about some of the doings of the Environmental Protection Agency. Hope you can join us. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.